I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There are some to whom our gospel is veiled, St. Paul tells us. There are some to whom our gospel is veiled. Several years ago, when I was in the process of returning to church after a season of falling away, I went on a retreat with some of the other young adults from the new parish I was attending. It was a way for me to gently dip my toe back into the waters of faith. The day started off well, the day of the retreat. There were tender conversations gathered around coffee and tea. There were light walks taken outside in the garden in the full exterior beauty of the retreat center. And the day was dotted with silence, with time spent in prayer in the chapel where we were. Yes, everything was going just fine. Yes, everything was going just fine until. Until we were gathered back together as a group to learn a new prayer practice, at least one that was going to be new to me. Latin for divine seeing or sacred seeing, visio divina is a way of praying, of talking with God that uses images, various illustrations to open up the conversation. And perhaps not surprisingly, visual depictions of the stories in the Bible are often used because employing the use of famous works of art can help practitioners enter into the stories of the scriptures as opposed to just simply reading them. As we, the young adults from the parish, all filed back into the room of the retreat center, the main place we'd gathered throughout much of the day, soon our visual aid was revealed, was introduced to us. We were going to be spending some time with Rembrandt's famous painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son, a significant rendering of one of Jesus's best-known parables. If you've never seen it before, the oil on canvas is a breathtaking depiction. In the scene, we see a son who was once thought dead, hairless and tattered, kneeling before his father, who is angled toward the boy, his hands placed lovingly around him. Almost blindingly, the foreground is lit by this reunion, an embrace that channels joy through the wretchedness and mistakes of the past, a story that is carried from beginning to end by a love without conditions. Yes, 
what we see and perhaps can editorialize is that the encounter, the encounter is a sign of the grace that is soon to come. It's a sign of hope amidst all that lay broken and shattered in their relationship. As our image drew us into our time of shared prayer and reflection, other people in the room began to remark on things that they noticed in the painting. Some commented on the interplay of light and shadows in the scene, noting who was centered, who was in the background, who was in the darkness, and why. Other people decided to zero in on details in the subjects as a way of discerning what any of these features could teach us about the parable we were looking at. Basically, basically, everyone was being drawn into the story. Everyone except for me. You see, what I didn't mention, what I didn't mention is that I have a little bit of a history with this parable. Because for a long time, the idea, the notion, that someone would want to stay in relationship beyond our mistakes, beyond our past errors, in the ways we have strayed, Yes, the idea that someone would want to stay in relationship through all that and further would do so because they are still head over heels for us in love with a reckless abandon is something that just seemed too strange and foreign to me. It seemed too strange and foreign from what I thought I knew about God and certainly about many of the relationships in this world. Anyways, following that time of prayer and reflection, we eventually found ourselves back in the chapel of the retreat center. And as we were in the chapel, our retreat leader and celebrant for the Eucharist we were about to share began to point out different things in the worship space that he wanted us to notice. Working his way around the room, he eventually got to the altar we were all gathered around, at which point he then asked us if we noticed anything weird about the table, anything strange or unusual about it. I searching the outside of the table, the altar, a piece that was clearly designed for the chapel, but as a later addition, my sight eventually landed on a big crack in the table, which was vessel-shaped, and so the altar presented like it was a giant cracked chalice or cup. Now, clearly seeing the design feature we were all invited to notice, the retreat leader explained 
that just before finishing the piece, the table meant to be a new altar in the chapel, that just before finishing it, the artist commissioned took a near final look and said, you know what? It's just too perfect. And so, and so with intention, he then hand cut the giant crack in the chalice-shaped altar because he wanted everyone who ever gathered around it to know as plainly as could possibly be stated that at God's table, perfection is not a prerequisite to receive. Yes, because God invites us to the table into relationship, not in spite of our misgivings and failures, but because of them. As you can imagine, I then began to have an emotional response to this table and to the information that came with it. And all of the weight about my own mistakes and my own regrets that I'd been carrying that morning and many mornings before that morning began to feel lighter. They began to slip away. In short, in short, it felt like the first time in a long time that the gospel didn't feel so veiled to me. It felt like a moment when I was finally meeting Jesus face to face. I tell that story, I tell that story because I think it has a powerful connection with our readings appointed for today. And both the selection from Exodus and the verses assigned from Matthew, we get not one, but two stories about mountaintops. Yet what you might also notice is that woven within those stories are examples of human failing, examples you can't miss, set alongside the glory of each mountain's peak. In our reading from Exodus, the passage begins with an invitation. Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, the Lord said to Moses. Seems straightforward enough. But a mountain as a means for ascent, a means for continuing a conversation with the divine, says something striking about the voice extending the invitation. The majesty of the mountain, the picture it paints of God's glory and grandeur. That example of God's omnipresence in a big way is paired together with a promise that appears regularly in these chapters, a promise that God will be both with and forever for the people of Israel and will remain locally present in each human heart, in each human life. While there's a lot that could be said about Exodus 24 and the eight chapters that follow it, this is a sermon, not a Bible study. So here's the story in miniature. I imagine some of you know it. 
Instructed by God to journey to the top of Mount Sinai, Moses follows God's voice. He ascends. But before he does, he says to the people of Israel, wait here for us until we come to you again. Ominous foreshadowing, right? Well, the next scene is pretty spectacular. Moses summits the mountain only for a great cloud to cover it. A shroud around the very presence of God that appeared to the people below like a devouring fire. There, Moses received tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. And there, Moses remained for 40 days and 40 nights. But skip ahead a bit, and as promised, the glory of the mountaintop meets the sting of human failing. Worried that they'd been abandoned in the Sinai wilderness, both by God and by Moses, the Israelites melt down their rings into a golden calf. They make a new God, and they build an altar before it. But even against the gravity of this mistake, God's covenant remains, a promise that God will be both forever with and forever for his people. And as we will soon see in today's reading from Matthew, God continues to invite humanity, flawed and prone to sin as ever, into the glory of another mountaintop moment. Yes, God continues to invite us into relationship, not in spite of our misgivings and failures, but because of them. In our gospel passage for today, we hear an account of an incredible scene, a scene that also has something to say about imperfect people, if you look for it. Six days after saying that some of his followers would experience the kingdom of God in a very real and present way, Jesus delivers on this promise. He takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain and what happens next is truly incredible. Jesus's appearance changes. He shimmers, he sparkles, he dazzles white. And he appears to be in a deep conversation with both Moses and Elijah, which is pretty incredible since they were both long dead. And then, more incredible still, we are told that a voice comes out of the sky and points to Jesus and says, this is my beloved, won't you listen to him? But the thing is, the thing that I find incredible about this moment is not all of the wonder and the dazzling and the conversations with dead people, no, the thing that I find incredible about it is who was invited to see it. Peter, James, and John. In short, what happens in this scene is a great unveiling, 
where the awesome reality of the gospel is made known and eventually spread, not through perfect people, but through three disciples whose failures, flaws, and misgivings are well documented. People who knew what it meant to make a mess of things, and yet would soon become conduits for the glory of God. And so, when I hold this story together with my story and with your story and with every story in the scriptures where God is calling people into relationship, what I sense is that the golden strand that unites them, the common truth in all, is that we follow a God who knows the lines and color every detail of each story of brokenness, and yet invites us into a divine encounter just the same. Not in spite of our misgivings and failures, but because of them. Friends, if this gospel, if this God feels veiled to you, let one thing be certain, and that is the unshakable truth that Jesus is calling you into more, into greater life, into relationship. And perfection is not a prerequisite to receive. Because if perfection was necessary, he would have never called Peter, a man who denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And if perfection was what was really needed, then he wouldn't have called James and John because they once lusted after the wrong kind of glory. And now that I think about it, I don't think he would have called Moses either. Certainly not after he murdered that Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And if perfection was what was truly needed to follow, to be in relationship with God, then he definitely, definitely wouldn't have called Paul a persecutor of Christians who God transfigured into an evangelist for the gospel and a martyr for the faith. Yes, yes, if the demons and the haunts of your past life, of your misgivings and failures, make you feel like you are beyond repair, know that every story of every saint and every character in Scripture has found people that God was able to work through, rough edges included. And so, surely, surely this God, this awesome, magnificent, all-powerful, all-loving, transfiguring God, if he can work with their rough edges, then surely he can work with yours too. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.